0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. But uh, I'm not the only one involved in producing these podcasts for you. I've had a lot of help from quite a few generous donors who are uh, helping to offset the expenses of producing and publishing these podcasts. And this week, I want to thank John A., Deborah A., and uh, longtime listener and frequent contributor, Paul D. I want to thank you for sending some money our way. So, John, Deborah, and Paul, uh, hey, thanks again. Your generosity is greatly appreciated. As promised... Today I'm going to uh, pick up on the trilogues between Terrence McKenna, Ralph Abraham, and Rupert Sheldrake that took place sometime in uh, 1992, and if I'm not mistaken, they were held at Esalen Institute on the California coast. And I didn't think I'd ever say this, but uh, by the end of today's trialogue, Terrence McKenna comes away uh, sounding like the conservative one of the three. (laughs) Well, first of all, I guess I should warn you, and uh, particularly any new listeners to the Salon, that not only is today's podcast uh, overly long, there are uh, a couple of points in this trialogue that uh, even get way too esoteric for me. And the reason I'm mentioning this is that I don't want to scare you away from future programs that uh, will be a little bit more down to earth. Uh, Of course, that said, I also have a hunch that parts of this conversation uh, may really resonate with you. And I have to admit that until now, uh, I haven't been all that keen on uh, some of Rupert's ideas. Maybe because he was uh, too grounded in reality or something like that, I don't know. But uh, in this trilogue, he really hits me close to home when he states that he believes that our sun is alive and uh, has a mind of some kind associated with it. You see, uh, i felt like uh, this was true for uh, quite a few years now. In fact, uh, a couple years ago, I was even into uh, solar gazing and uh, gained some uh, amazing intuitions about the sun... But that's another story for another day. Uh, anyway, I too have uh, felt some sort of uh, living kinship with the sun. Enough about my strange belief system. Uh, let's uh, let's join Rupert Sheldrake as he is setting up today's trialogue by putting into context what he means when he invokes as the topic of discussion the heavens.
1: This evening, the subject we're going to be discussing is the heavens. The context for this discussion is what I'd like to sketch now. In the past, in all traditional cultures, people have assumed, taken it for granted, that we live in a living world. Not only is the earth, Gaia, Mother Earth, a living organism, but also the entire heavens are alive, pervaded with gods, angels, spirits and celestial beings of every kind. The ancient Greeks shared this traditional view and it pervaded their view of the universe. The whole universe was alive for them. The whole universe was like a great organism with a body, a soul and spirit and the soul of the entire universe was called the world soul the anima mundi in latin anima being the latin word for soul the soul of the world not just the earth but the whole cosmos this was the view that persisted through the middle ages and through the renaissance but it was a view that was shattered by the mechanistic revolution of the 17th century when the universe simply became a great mechanical system uh, consisting of matter in motion with no spirit and no uh, soul. So the heavens became a great mechanical system and the earth just became a misty ball of rock hurtling around the sun in accordance with Newton's laws of motion we're now undergoing a process whereby we're coming to see nature as alive again. And this is the theme of my book, The Rebirth of Nature. The aspect of this process that most people are most familiar with is the recovery of the sense of the earth as a living organism. The Gaia hypothesis of James Lovelock puts forward a scientific view of the living earth which in one respect is modern, um, empirical, scientific, in another respect uh, reawakens an ancient archetype which in fact is so clearly suggested by the very name of the hypothesis, Gaia, the Greek name for Mother Earth. So for many people in the green movement and the ecological uh, movement, the The idea of the Earth as a living organism has become a powerful image and one which is already beginning to shape the way that people think about our relationship to the the world in which we live, this Earth, this planet. But this is part of a much wider move in science which I describe in detail in The Rebirth of Nature. I'm not going to go into that now except to summarize some of the essential features the mechanistic worldview is being transcended by science itself. It's still the dominant model within biology and medicine which are like living fossils of an earlier mode of thought. But in the physical sciences um, in many respects we've gone beyond old-style mechanism. The mechanistic worldview is originally formulated was entirely deterministic. Everything was supposed to happen in a completely fixed way. Everything was fixed in advance. There was no freedom or spontaneity in nature. People couldn't predict it in detail but that was regarded as simply a limitation of scientific knowledge and technique. However, this deterministic view has now softened and in fact been abandoned in most respects first through the quantum revolution in the 1920s when indeterminism was recognized at the quantum level, and more recently the chaos revolution has given us permission to recognize that almost all aspects of nature are in fact chaotic, um, in the sense that they're not rigidly predictable. They can be modeled in terms of chaotic dynamics or at least some of them can be, but um, the old idea of Newtonian determinism has been abandoned. The weather's not like that, the breaking of waves is not like that, the way our brains work is not like that. Uh, At every level of nature there's a non-Newtonian quality which has now been recognized. Another way in which this um, has been uh, expressed is through Prigogine's idea of non-equilibrium thermodynamics. Uh, where far from equilibrium small fluctuations can be amplified to give pattern and order so there's a kind of uh, resurgence of the sense of freedom and spontaneity in nature from nature being bound into a rigid uh, deterministic model uh, a freedom of spontaneity and an openness are emerging once again it's now recognized the future is open not determined by the past And this is true in many realms, the astronomical realm, the human realm, the meteorological realm, in many ways. Then, the the mechanistic view said the world was a machine created by God, conceived of as a divine machine maker. Um, And the machinery had no creativity within it. All that machines can do, at least machines of the old kind, is go wrong and God had to intervene uh, from time to time in Newton's model to wind up the machinery again. Laplace at the beginning of the 19th century perfected the equations of celestial mechanics and got rid of the need for this kind of uh, maintenance man God Um, and, uh, and in fact got rid of the idea of God altogether by assuming that it was an eternal perpetual motion machine no need for a creator, no need for a maintenance crew um, everything just went on uh, by itself forever. However, with the development of thermodynamics in the 19th century, uh, perpetual motion machines were outlawed, and um, <coughs> it was then thought that the universe was gradually running out of steam uh, through an accumulation of entropy. Um, and so there was the idea of a devolving cosmos, but certainly not one that was creative. The universe had either always been the way it was or it was created in the beginning by God. There was no creativity in nature, no freedom, spontaneity, creativity. With Darwin's theory of evolution, creativity came back in the biological realm. It was recognized in the development of animals and plants over the millennia, over over millions of years, over billions of years. Uh, A creativity was recognized in biology, But not in the rest of nature. The the cosmologists held firm to a mechanistic universe. Uh, It wasn't until the 1960s, with the cosmological revolution, the Big Bang Theory, that the entire universe was conceived of in evolutionary terms. We now have a model of the cosmos starting small with a Big Bang, which is a bit like the ancient myths of the creation of all things through the hatching or cracking of the cosmic egg and since then the universe has been growing, and as it grows, forming ever more complex structures and patterns within itself. In other words, it's far more like a developing organism or a growing embryo than it is like any machinery with which we're familiar. We've now effectively got a model of the cosmos as a developing organism. And since we now have this radically evolutionary view which puts creativity throughout the entire developmental process of the cosmos, um, it becomes possible to challenge another of the great assumptions of mechanistic science, namely the idea that everything is governed by eternal laws. This is the basis of my own work on memory in nature, my hypothesis of uh, morphic resonance or formative causation. This is discussed in detail in my books, The New Science of Life and the Presence of the Past. The basic idea I'm proposing is that the so-called laws of nature may be more like habits. They may depend on what's happened before and on how often it's happened. So there may be a cumulative memory in nature, largely unconscious, um, which gives rise to habits and things that accounts for the stability of nature as we know it. But this is not all governed by eternal laws that were all there at the moment of the Big Bang. I don't think there was a kind of cosmic Napoleonic code in place at that moment of origin. Um, Habits have grown up, creativity has given rise to myriads of new forms and possibilities, only some of which survive, and through a natural selection process, the surviving ones, the ones that are repeated, become increasingly habitual. Well, that's the view that I've suggested. It's controversial within biology and the other sciences, needless to say. Um, it leads to many predictions the idea for example of a collective memory within each biological species Uh, the best known example being that if you train rats to learn a new trick in one place rats all around the world should learn the same trick quicker just because the rats have learned it here for example the more that learn it the quicker it should get everywhere else so an eternal memory, uh, a, a, a collective memory uh, based on the process of morphic resonance, the influence of like upon like. Similar things resonate across time and this is the basis of the memory process in nature. Well, this um, gives a sense of the cosmos as a living organism once again. The earth is alive, a living cosmos, and gives a new sense of the life of animals and plants. According to mechanistic science, animals and plants are just machines, and so are we, except for the presence of some mysterious rational mind located inside the brain, which interacts in a mysterious way with the machinery of the nervous system." Um, That is the current view still within our culture, Um, and it's totally different from the traditional view that all Europeans had until the scientific revolution. When the whole universe was alive, the earth was alive, animals and plants had souls. The very word animal in English comes from the Latin word anima, soul. Plants too were believed to have souls in the middle ages and this was the official teaching of the Roman church. Um, The cosmos was a living organism um, uh, peopled by innumerable spirits. So. This sense of deanimation, the, the deanimation of nature, happened through science. The cosmos just became matter in motion, animals and plants became just machines, the soul was withdrawn from the whole of nature and from the whole of our bodies until all that was left was the rational mind inside the brain. Everything else in the world was inanimate, mechanical, lacking any meaning, sense, or purpose of its own. The only beings in the universe, or at least on this earth, with true purpose were human beings the only ends or goals that mattered were human goals or human ends the only values were human values nature had no value in itself this is the underlying philosophy that's given rise to the ecological crisis well a recovery of the sense of the life of nature which is going on for for a variety of reasons in a variety of ways through the archaic revival the revival of animistic modes of thought, Well we're talking now about the revival of animism, a new animism, a new sense of the life of nature. The archaic revival and the shamanic revival is part of this. Um, The Gaia hypothesis is another part. Deep ecology and the ecology movement in general is another part. I'm suggesting that science itself is pointing us in this direction, (coughs) uh, a recovery of the sense of the life of nature. And This, I think, is happening now all around us. But there's a further step which I think we need to take. That's not only to see the natural world as alive, but to see it as sacred. In the past, the heavens were sacred, and so was the earth, and especially the sacred places on the earth which were the focuses of power, power points, uh, which were recognized in every land by every culture, by American Indians in America, by Europeans, both pre-Christian and Christian within Europe. And these uh, were by Australian Aborigines, by Africans, um, by Jews in the Holy Land, the sacred places of the Holy Land, which we still, of course, call the Holy Land. This sense of the sacredness of the land and the earth was found in all cultures. And in all cultures there was um, um, a way in which people related to it through journeying to places of power through pilgrimage pilgrimage was suppressed for the first time in human history um, by the protestant reformers in northern europe at the reformation creating a void, a desacralization of nature a loss of the sense of the sacred out there, the sa- sense of the sacred became focused entirely on man the only sacred thing was man and most most men were sinners and most women too perhaps even more so um, so they, um, But only the drama of religion was the drama of fall and redemption played out between man and God. Nature had nothing to do with it except as a kind of backdrop or as a means of people enriching themselves, becoming prosperous as a sign of God's grace and providence. Well, um, the English couldn't bear this void for long caused by the suppression of pilgrimage and within a few generations had invented tourism which um, is best seen as a form of secularized pilgrimage. Um, and I've suggested in, in, in uh, The Rebirth of Nature, and something that's going on anyway, is, is a recovery of the sense of pilgrimage, a paradigm shift from tourism back to pilgrimage. I think this can go a long way to helping to resacralize the earth. Another way in which the nat- natural world was sacralized was through seasonal festivals, through which the whole community, not just individuals but the community, participated in in festivals that marked the changing seasons of the year, the solstices, the equinoxes, the festivals associated with them, which we in the Christian world have inherited through, uh, from their pagan roots, through festivals like Christmas and Easter and of course the Jewish religion is pervaded by a sense of festivals and sacred time and these again were inherited from the Canaanites, the inhabitants of Palestine uh, when the Jews moved in. They took over the old sacred festivals. So seasonal festivals and pilgrimage are ways in which we can help to re-sacralize the earth and these are movements already to some extent underway and probably many people here are aware of a need to recover a sense of the sacred in the earth. What I want to move on to now is, although that's only just begun, it's got a lot further to go, there's a sense in which this idea is established. However, re the heavens is what I want to talk about this evening, and that involves going considerably further than anyone I know has yet gone It's one thing to recover a sense of the life of the Earth, and we are doing that uh, to varying degrees. The awareness of the ecological crisis, tropical rainforests being cut in British Columbia, this kind of thing is well known, widely lamented, and uh, many people, including myself, feel moved to various forms of activism in trying to do something about it. But when we come to the heavens, we're still in a state of great ignorance. The vast majority of modern people know almost nothing about the heavens. I mean, of course, lots of people have books showing pictures of the earth from space, or um, children are given books about space travel fantasies. Um, My own children, I'm sad to say, learn more about the heavens from the idea of sitting inside spaceships and pressing buttons than from actually looking at the sky. And uh, this is the way that children are raised now. Um, The actual sky is something of which most people are abysmally ignorant. In most traditional cultures, most people could tell the stars. Mariners had to know them, shepherds knew the sky, Uh, ordinary people knew the basic constellations in the sky, could pick them out, and knew the pattern of change of the stars. The Egyptians, for example, had special ceremonies. Uh, the rising of Sirius when Sirius came into the sky it was there for a certain season of the year and then it went invisible again and um, so this awareness of stars of the phases of the moon of the general um, movements and, and positions of the planets is widespread in traditional cultures um, and of course the information is there in our culture but it's hard to find someone who actually knows it who can point to the constellations in the sky So first of all, we have a general ignorance of the skies. Secondly, um, the skies are now regarded from a scientific point of view as just matter, and that's the domain of astronomy. But oddly enough, astronomers don't know that much about the sky as you actually experience it. They've got a lot of equations about the life cycle of stars, about the nature of pulsars and other strange mysteries in the heavens. Um, But... Uh, very few know about them i was having dinner a couple of years ago with the professor of astronomy at cambridge whose wife is the godmother of one of my sons and we he's head of the institute of astronomy there we went out after dinner it was a beautiful scarlet starlit night there was a particularly bright uh, star there and i said um, what's that one martin and he oh, I haven't a clue, don't ask me he said, I don't know what these stars constellations are <laughs> um, <laughs> he really didn't know because he, wor- he learned astronomy from books, from computer models not from looking at the sky and Steve Rook, who's here um, this evening, who's here with us in this workshop, who's worked in the, uh, with astronomers in Arizona at some big observatory there uh, told me that going in there and they're looking in this telescope, they're focused on a particular star if you ask them what constellation is this in, they don't know, they've got they punch in the computer to get to that star, they don't know the bigger picture, they're not seeing the wood for the trees Um, and Steve said that to find out, you had to go outside look to see which way the telescope was pointed through the dome and and work out which constellation it was in Um, so astronomers are not Uh, really leading us in a true knowledge of the heavens as we experience them. Amateur astronomers are probably the only people who still keep alive the sense of observation and relationship to the heavens. Astrologers um, have retained a sense of the heavens as meaningful and having a relation, an organic meaningful relationship between the heavens and the earth. This was part of the old cosmology that everybody shared but since the scientific revolution these astrologers um, have continued with that sense of meaning which is very valuable but it's become completely detached from the actual heavens So it's no use asking your average astrologer if you see a bright star in the sky or a a planet what's that? because most of them don't look at the sky any more than anyone else does it's all done from computer programs and books so that's become detached from astronomy. I think a great move forward would happen when astronomy and astrology link up again. I was particularly struck in 1987, there was a massive supernova in the southern hemisphere, the biggest supernova since 1604, an exploding star in the skies which Galileo and Kepler saw, and which played a major part in the scientific revolution all through history these supernovas, exploding stars in the sky have been regarded as major omens of the most important, of the greatest importance. Here was the biggest one since 1604. Now I asked my astrologer friends, you know, well what do you make of this? Well the answer is they didn't make anything whatever of it because it wasn't in the ephemeris, It wasn't in their Macintosh computer program. Um, It was just ignored. Um, The astronomers took a great interest in it, but saw no meaning in it. So that's the state we're in today and um, I think that a lot of good will come from recovering a sense of the life of the heavens and I'm just going to say a little bit more about that um, to try and make it clearer what I mean. Well we know that Gaia is a living planet. I think we also have to take seriously the idea that the Sun is alive. I think myself that the Sun is conscious or has a mind associated with it and if one wants a scientific rationale for thinking this uh, one comes ready to hand through the discoveries of modern solar physics. It's now known that the Sun has a complex system of magnetic fields it reverses its polarity every eleven years associated with the sunspot cycle. And with this underlying rhythm of magnetic polar reversal, there are a whole series of uh, resonant and harmonic patterns of magnetic and electromagnetic change, global patterns over the surface of the sun, of a kind of fractal nature, patterns within patterns, highly turbulent, highly chaotic, um, showing uh, extremely varied, highly subtle, sensitive changing electromagnetic patterns the whole time now if we believe that the electromagnetic patterns within our brains are the interface between mind and the nervous system which is what most people do think reasonable hypothesis then um, here we have a possible interface with the physical uh, behavior of the sun through these complex electromagnetic patterns that go far beyond anything our brains can do So it's perfectly possible if you want to stay within the present scientific imagination of thinking how the sun could have a mind which interfaces with the activity uh, that we can actually observe, the electromagnetic patterns that go throughout the whole sun. Now the solar system of course is an organism, Uh, it's not just the sun, the entire system around it, the planets. and the Sun constitutes an entire system, which we call the solar system, and this is largely what astrology has concerned itself with. But we also also recognize now that the Sun is part of a galaxy, the Milky Way is part of our galaxy. All the stars we see in the sky are within our own galaxy. With the naked eye, we can see um, one or two other galaxies. The Andromeda uh, Nebula is the main one, But that's all we can see with the naked eye. All the stars we see are within this galaxy. And this galaxy, like other galaxies, has a galactic center. And galactic centers often have things called quasars in them, which may be gigantic black holes as a kind of nucleus to the whole galaxy. And galaxies have structures, and we can think of them as organisms too. And they seem to come in clusters called uh, galactic clusters, and those come in superclusters. So if we think of each of these as an organism, we have vast organisms, of which our Earth is a tiny part, a tiny part of the solar system, which is part of a vastly greater organism. And if the Sun has a kind of consciousness, then so what, what about the entire galaxy with this mysterious center? They all seem to have these cores that relate to the rest of the galaxy in uh, little understood ways. What about galactic clusters, and what about the cosmos as a whole? we have levels of potential consciousness or awareness or mental activity vastly beyond anything we experience ourselves um, of ever more inclusive natures. When we turn to ancient traditions we find that this has always been the general belief. The entire cosmos is believed to be animate. God has been seen as residing in the sky, beyond the sky but also in the sky, our Father who art in heaven. Now, of course, most modern people, including most modern Christians, when they hear those words, our Father who art in heaven, immediately respond, oh, well, of course, that doesn't mean the actual sky, oh, no, no, no. It means a state of mind, a metaphor, a state of being, but certainly not the actual sky. But what I'd like to entertain is the view that it does mean the sky, that our Father, if we have the idea of a Father God, then he is in heaven. If God is omnipresent, then he must be present throughout the heavens. And since um, the heavens are vastly greater than the earth, about 9999 recurring percent of the divine presence must be in the sky rather than on the earth. (laughs) Now, (laughs) if we take the same crudely quantitative approach, we arrive at the same conclusions about the celestial goddess, because, of course, the heavens can also be seen as the abode or the being of the goddess. In Egyptian mythology, the sky was the abode of Nut, the sky goddess, who was the womb of the heavens, who gave birth to the sun and the moon and the stars. She was the, the, the the space of the night skies, the womb from which these things come forth. And that was the image also of Astarte, and it's been assimilated into Christianity through the image of Mary, Mother of God, as Queen of Heaven. Portrayed as in images of Our Lady of Guadalupe as wearing a blue robe, the sky blue robe, studded with stars. So this is also a Christian image of the goddess and um, the image of Mary as mother of God. Um, You see, it it has this idea of this primordial womb of space or the sky from which all things come. The angels were believed to be celestial hierarchies of beings. In Christian, Jewish, and Islamic belief, there are nine hierarchies of angels, um, perhaps corresponding to superclusters of galaxies, galaxies, solar systems, and so on. And the planets and the stars were believed to be the abode of intelligences. Of even our English names for the planets are the Latin names of the gods and goddesses, the Venus, Mercury, Mars, and so on. Um, We still preserve those days. We name the days of our week after them. Monday, Moon Day, Sunday, Sunday. Uh, Friday, Freya's Day in English, corresponding to Venus's day. It's the goddess day. Um, uh, Freya's the northern equivalent of Venus. So there was this sense of all these angelic beings associated with the stars. In the 16th century, there was a revival of ancient star magic, Uh, this is something I know Ralph has studied and I hope we can take up John Dee and others um, connected with particular stars and invoked the spirit of that star to connect with that intelligence asking for its guidance help or inspiration so it was an attempt actually to contact these um, uh, beings, these intelligences and communicate with them. Well since science, since the heavens have been secularized and have become the domain of physical astronomy alone um, then the idea that they're peopled has never died. There's still a search for extraterrestrial intelligence uh, at present, I think, rather narrowly conceived. You know, beam out the decimal points of pi and beings on other planets will pick it up and realize that we're intelligent because we know uh, about these kinds of mathematical formulae. Uh, That's the general kind of approach. And meanwhile, the idea of the beings within the heavens, this idea of the heavens as the abode of many kinds of beings, has been left to the rather banal imaginations of science fiction writers. It still lives on, but no longer in the form of angels, but in the fantasies of science fiction. Well, I want to raise the possibility that we can indeed once again link with the living heavens. We have first of all to recognize there's a kind of life in the heavens beyond that well as maybe as well as that of the maybe other technological civilizations like ours that think like we do and may indeed be beaming out the formula for Pi uh, through radio waves uh, maybe one day we'll pick it up but I think these would be the least interesting civilizations to contact in a way um, they'd be far too like ourselves um, I think that if we are to contact beings on other planets, that the way we're going to do it is not through hardware, not through the NASA approach, not through uh, spacecraft that are going to take many, many years, thousands of years to reach other stellar systems, and and, uh, billions of years or many millions to reach other galaxies. Uh, To have astronauts on them who are drugged or go into a kind of state of hibernation and wake up, these are all far too clumsy they won't work. Um, If we're going to make contact, it has to be through some kind of mental relationship. Now I think morphic resonance is not limited by distance. Morphic resonance works on the basis of similarity and provides a possible basis for a kind of resonant mental communication with beings on other planets or other stellar solar systems. Um, There could be a kind of commerce, a kind of communication between us and other beings which doesn't involve billion-dollar budgets or multi-billion-dollar bu- budgets, enormous expenditure on hardware, and so on, but relies on a completely different approach, not one at present taken very seriously, if considered at all, by the astronomical community, but one which I propose we might consider here this evening. <laughs> <laughs>
2: hear, hear. <laughs>
1: Ralph, (laughs) (laughs) what was John Dee trying to do? Uh, First, that's a historical fact, maybe you could fill us in on.
3: Mm. Yes, well, the uh, star magic idea in Elizabethan England uh, preceded the nucleation of science as we know it, and Represented a transmission from the ancient world with a lot of uh, um, changes, simplifications, and additions, and so on. But the central idea of it, I would, I would think, is the ancient idea of the great chain of being, and that's, uh, I think, an idea which is represented in in your view that you just described. And a view that um, we, as soon as I describe it, I think everybody here will, will have a certain amount of trouble with it. Let me see. Um, the, the ancient model uh, of the universe with the angels in it and everything came down to us from Pseudo Dionysius. So this was some kind of encapsulation of ancient wisdom that. They like to do in Alexandria, and like wrap up a package and send it into the future. And this one actually reached us through the world of Islam. And uh, there were these concentric spheres. With uh, I think that uh, there are nine, ten, or eleven, depending on the view, whether the the human mind would be the lowest, scummiest part, might or might not be distinguished from the sphere of the Earth and so on. but Basically, the Earth is in the center even after the time of Copernicus and even for us, of course, when we sit in our hot tub and look at the sky, of course, we are in the center and the Earth is a sphere around us. And the outside the ninth, tenth or eleventh uh, sphere was nothing. The top sphere was the unmoving sphere of God and the other spheres of the planets and the sun and the moon um, of course intermediated in a kind of a transmission that uh, morphic resonance over such a long distance all the way from God to to us would be too difficult without some midway stations and there were these radio amplifiers along the way which are these other spheres so the whole um, motive for this model is the great chain of being, the transmission of God's will, as it were, from the unmoving sphere of God to us. And uh, I see here is a book on Giordano Bruno, who is just sitting here in front of me. So um, I want to remind you why Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake on Easter Sunday in the year 1600 in Rome. And uh, that was because, besides his many heresies, uh, very interesting to us, for example, his theory of comets, which is a chaotic cosmic phenomenon, uh, probably as important as supernovae in a history of consciousness. Uh, that's not why they burned him at the stake. It's because he insisted, after Copernicus, on the infinity of the universe, that is, that the stars were not, you know, there were the planetary spheres. All the stars that we see occupied one sphere. That's the celestial sphere, and the sphere of God is the one outside that. So, Giordano Bruno believed the stars were not on one sphere, but outside this sphere of Jupiter, that they um, filled space. And the reason that the Church objected to this was that it left no space for God. Our Father in Heaven had no place to go, and that was very threatening to the entire system. So, as I, as you've presented, I'm I'm seeing this um, cosmology, or an opportunity for us to construct a new cosmology of our own. That this is upset if, if we don't have our God in Heaven or our Goddess. In heaven to occupy the upper sphere, because what are the the purpose of all these spheres? What is the purpose of the angels, the choir, the nine choirs of angels, the potentialities, the dominions, the cherubs, and the seraphs? So, <clears throat> I think uh, that the idea of one God can't be resurrected; that it's a it's a casualty that. Uh, a religion of the future would have to have a whole pantheon of gods, goddesses, and so on, and this could include the living and sacred sun, moon, the planets, the Milky Way, the quasars in its center, the nearby galaxies, the clusters of galaxies, and, and, and so on. But the uh, the geocentric picture has to be abandoned, <coughs> and so this it comes down to this question. What is uh, the purpose of SETI? I mean, do you think that because um, for 25,000 years of our evolution, the evolution of our habits, that uh, certain phantasmic mythical figures have been projected on the constellations of the sky, that <clears throat> that's our sacred heritage, and because of these creodes in the morphic field, we can somehow make use of them have, try to have a conversation with them or something. Or is it that we have to rediscover our own cosmology in, um, in SETI, where we try to find out what are the real intelligences in the sky and the he- heavenly realms by conversing with
1: them? SETI, in parenthesis, means... Search for SETI is an abbreviation yes. for search for extraterrestrial intelligence, is that it?
3: That's right, yes, mm-hmm. yes, SETI is uh, extraterrestrial, and we've certainly given up any hope of finding terrestrial intelligence, <laughs> <laughs> although corn circles are promising. so anyway that's uh, a general response and uh, I just want to put in a word uh, for angels here and then I'll turn it over to Terence that uh, I think personally the uh, seti is of interest because of our own journeys where we depart the the, the body, then we also have left sometimes earth far behind, reaching this realm so difficult to name, the transcendent other, the logos, and, and so on, but a, a realm well-traveled by our forebears, um, superb, brave travelers of the past who have left all kind of written records of, of their journeys. On these journeys of ours, we do have the experience of meeting extraterrestrial intelligence and conversing and learning and being taught. And indeed, our whole hope for the future, little as that may seem now, (laughs) is based somehow on these travels, on the uh, conviction that we have had Gnostic experience, direct experience of extraterrestrial intelligence, this is our interest, not uh, because we need to search and find, but because we have searched and have found, and what do we make of this experience? So I think the relationship between the, uh, as above, uh, as below, this is the idea, the relationship between the experience of our own journeys and the evidence of our eyes in looking at the at the sky, the inner and the outer. What is the relationship? That is the program of the setting so in, in our perspective. And um, the, I, I think this overall uh, idea of the, the great chain of, of being can actually be salvaged in our cosmology without reference to our Father God in heaven or any, even the, the, see the ideas of gods and goddesses um, uh, angels and so on is not um, exactly the right verbal equipment to describe our experience that's what I think, but extraterrestrial intelligence, that's better, I mean there may be a physical location in space and time, somewhere in the universe, for this intelligence and There may not. There there may be no correlation as above, so below. Nevertheless, it's the conversation with the intelligence which is most important to us, not the identification with the physical matter, energy, uh, and morphic fields of, of these. I'm not sure if I could Connect uh, an intelligent being I've encountered in uh, out of the body travel with the Milky Way or the planet Jupiter. It makes sense to me when you say you believe that they're intelligent beings. I can imagine the sunspots uh, ac- running across the face of the, the sun in this furious speed as a kind of a uh, cephalopod communication between one sun and another. I presume they can see each other, and uh, Saturn is mm-hmm. having a conversation with uh, the sun that goes like this: Saturn's got his rings, waves them like that, and then the sun blinks, you know, and sends like <laughs> sunspot whirling across, and has like a semaphoric conversation, and in this way the order of the universe is maintained by discourse by consensus by voting in committee and, and so on if this is so <coughs> whether there's a correlation um, between this intelligence which is associated with the universe uh, the cosmic structures like galaxies and the space of our inexperience our inner experience this... Possible correlation is an interesting question. So I wonder, since you know, uh, in your travels, does this make sense to you, Terence, on the basis of direct gnostic experience?
2: You mean that, that you we
3: have we traveled in the universe or without it? So
2: are you saying, is it, does it seem reasonable to connect up the entities in the psychedelic experience to particular places in space and time?
3: Yeah, does Rupert's question pertain to direct experience we've already had, or is SETI something we have yet to uh, begin to make contact with these galactic intelligence? So the Milky Way would be a good friend to make.
2: Well, we've had this discussion before, I've always, it's hard for me, I can imagine that the Sun is intelligent and an organism, but only if I imagine it exists on that scale in some way that it's fairly hard to relate to. In other words, it's like the Pacific Ocean, I can imagine it to be intelligent but i I would imagine that its intelligence is of such a nature that it and I probably don't have too much to do with each other. M- meanwhile, out in the universe somewhere um, these entities exist which we do contact in the psychedelic experience i, I I've always sort of imagined, well, I'm never sure. I mean, are they creatures of other levels or simply other places? And then if other places, they seem to be places so far away that the laws of physics are different. So it's not just like the difference between Chicago and Memphis, it's like the difference between Chicago and Oz. You know, there's an ontological thing going on uh, of incommiserability. Sometimes I think that uh, perhaps, you know, we've talked about how the morphogenetic field is um, a necessary hypothesis, but hard to detect the way you can detect an electromagnetic field, well then uh, the creative response to that is to say, well, perhaps the imagination is the detection of the morphogenetic field, that the imagination is somehow that the mind, the brain-mind system is a quantum, mechanically delicate enough chemical system that incoming input from the morphogenetic field can push these cascades of chemical activity one way or another, and that in the act of daydreaming or psychedelic tripping or something, you're actually scanning the morphogenetic field. Well, in that case, it means that what we call the imagination is actually the universal library of what is real, that you couldn't imagine it if it weren't real somewhere, sometime. And in that, that, to me, is very empowering, because I think that's... That's the truth that you learn at the center of the psychedelic experience. That's so mind-boggling that you can't really return to it with it. That that it's real. And if the if thinking about the heavens in this way as organic, integrated, and animate uh, makes that more probable, then I'm I'm all for it. Um, I think Rupert, you and I, and perhaps to some degree, Ralph, are come out of the influence of the school called Organismic Philosophy that Alfred North Whitehead and uh, Joseph Needham and uh, L. L. White put forth. Clearly, the reason that Organism, you know, Rupert made the very eloquent case for Organismic organization at every level, Clearly the reason that's been unwelcome in science is because it raises questions about um, the signal systems which hold these organisms together, and that is pointing back toward a theme that I know is dear to Rupert, he touched on it this evening, which is the systematic elimination of spirit from any explanation of what nature is. I mean, a machine communicates mechanical force through uh, direct contact, basically. An organism operates through uh, chemical systems of diffusion, or color signal, or even language in some cases so it's these uh it's these higher order forms of function if called down to explain large chunks of nature that begin to look like a reinfusion of spirit into nature strangely enough this is of course exactly what we need but orthodoxy is fighting uh, you know tooth and nail This is because it's still reacting to the 19th century battle where deism had such power that it appeared potentially capable of frustrating Darwinian rationalism. But that battle was won long ago. Now it's time to realize that trying to reason upward from the laws of atomic physics to organisms is not going to work that there are what David Bohm and other people, I suppose, called emergent properties at every level. There's nothing magical about that concept. I mean, think of one molecule of water. It's absurd to call it wet. You know, wetness is something that you have when you have millions of molecules of water. It's an emergent property, that comes out of millions of molecules of water, and at every level in the evolution of physical complexity, complexity itself has permitted the emergence of new properties. With you know the iridescence of mind and culture emerging finally uh, at the top of this pyramid. Uh, I don't know. I think it's interesting the way the culture has changed its attitude toward the heavens. I mean, a revolution in our thinking that is fairly fundamental is that uh, no one at this point, I think, believes in uh, the human conquest of space. This has gone from a national commitment in in the 60s to the chicest thing you could be into in the 70s on a par with virtual reality and MDMA today to it isn't mentioned not by freaks like us not by presidential candidates not by right-wingers, left-wingers middle-of-the-roaders or anybody else it's all over the heavy lift launch capacity that resided in the Soviet military-industrial complex has been allowed to drift into obsolescence. They held the keys to reaching near-Earth orbit, and it's f- slipping away. So uh, it, I appreciate your attempt to animate the cosmos, because apparently we're turning I- into the worm dimension. We're turning away from all that. Uh, It it has become, like so much, a, a part of a past era of grandeur and glory seeming not to be repeated. We held a virtual reality conference here a year and a half ago, and Howard Reingold had a revelation in the middle of the night down on the platform in front of the big house when he said, my God, now I understand what virtual reality is for. It's to keep us from ever leaving the Earth, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it bears consideration. Your talk made me think of Olaf Stapleton's *The Star Maker*, which is a wonderfully eloquent statement of an animate cosmos. Which, if you've not read it, it's a very up book. Mm.
1: It seems to me in terms of what you said this in terms of communication with other planets. Probably the, the SETI, the S E T I program <coughs> now, which is based on radio telescopes, heavy technology and stuff, is I mean it may be worth doing, but I myself don't think it will get very far If we take this other approach, possibly involving psychedelics, there seem to be three points here. Firstly, uh, are we trying to communicate with beings of our own kind of level, i.e. biological-type organisms on planets somewhere else in the universe. That would be a kind of peer conversation, and it may be that psychedelics would help that, it may be that shamanic journeyings into the heavens, which are a long part of a very long tradition, it may have gone on for hundreds of thousands of years, those may have been contacting beings of that kind, of a similar order to ourselves, Then there's this thing that you rather dismissed the communication with a higher kind of mind or intelligence, the Pacific Ocean, the Sun, the solar system, the galaxy. Um, I think you dismissed it too soon because in a sense the the idea that our minds are very much smaller parts of a very much larger mental system incomprehensible to us because it's so much larger than our own uh, so much more inclusive and working on a different time scale and order of magnitude uh, this is of course a very traditional idea that our intelligence is lower in the scale than much higher ones but we can communicate with these higher levels of intelligence through prayer through uh, mystical insight or intuition um, we don't have to stay at our own level, that there are these possibilities, most mystical insights are about contacting um, higher levels of being or higher levels of intelligence <laughs> And most forms of mysticism today are extremely fuzzy because people, uh, as soon as you get beyond the human level, we lack maps. I mean, is it a sense of connection with a particular place? You know, the, the earth of the California coast and the sea, that we, uh, the, lo- the locality extending maybe 20 or 30 miles around us, uh, a sense of absorption into the nature of that place, or the whole planet Earth, or the solar system, or the galaxy or the cluster of galaxies or the cosmos or God who may be a spirit uh, pervading the entire cosmos the unifying spirit of everything Um, most people don't quite know where one leaves off and the next begins all they know is that it's bigger than them and it may be that uh, we're not in the past people may have had a better sense of just how far they were going I think these doctrines of hierarchies of angels um, was an attempt to Recognize that there are many different levels of intelligence or mind uh, beyond our own so um, and there's a third point which is that in order to contact um, beings possibly with the help of psychedelics possibly in meditative or altered states of consciousness induced through chanting or possibly by a combination of all known means um, uh, all these together Um To do it in a darkened room with one's eyes closed um, is one way, Um, but then that's rather random. There may be much more directional ways of doing it. (coughs) If, for example, we follow the ancient law about the benefits of of stars and take the idea that the star Regulus, for example, is considered a star of good omen, a good one, we have a stellarator, a tube or a telescope fixed on Regulus we then go into this altered state having invoked Regulus um, and made appropriate prayers and preparations and then go into this state connected by our eyes in the most direct way we can be through the light coming from that to that star and go into that star and its mm-hmm. associated solar system. This would be a form of directed mind travel that would go beyond possible random journeyings that occur with closed eyes in darkened rooms And it may be that very few people have actually started. There may be some, I don't know anyone who's doing this, but this seems to me a new frontier of space exploration that can be done on a very low budget. (laughs) And uh, uh, Hmm. and would um, open up uh, a great range of possibilities. Because it may be that some stars out there do have beings with whom we'd link through for example, DMT or psilocybin-type experiences might resonate. I would say by morphic resonance, you could say by telepathy, you could say by some kind of affinity. doesn't matter about the terminology. With beings, either, either with that star itself or with uh, beings on planets within that solar system. And a channel of communication might be opened. Then there are stars that... the only the bravest would dare to look into, such as Algol, Mm. a variable star of ill repute in the ancient world, (laughs) believed to be an evil star. We now know that its variability its changing intensity every two or three days, it gets brighter and darker, is owing to the fact it's part of a binary star system, probably uh, revolving rapidly around or is in association with a black hole or at least some other non-visible body. Um, It might be that uh, communicating with Algol would have, um, one would enter into a a kind of dualistic, a yin-yang type uh, stellar system that might have a very peculiar quality of consciousness to communicate. Well, do you know anyone who's actually consciously undertaken this mode of space exploration?
2: No, but I think it's a wonderful idea. I, I can well, I envision enormous, uh, you know, why use a stenerator? Why not use the Keck telescope and just punch up Algol oh, on the no. screen and then smoke DMT and uh, <laughs> sort of put your hand on the radio, as they used to say. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Hey, uh, it could work. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't doubt it for a moment. <laughs>
3: well, I do know somebody who undertook a program something like this. Mm-hmm. No. It was me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my my project involved um, my, my technical equipment that made this possible, that empowered me to travel to the stars, my destination. Uh, was my hot tub. This is an instrument that makes it comfortable to sit outdoors for a long time watching the sky. I explored uh, primarily the polar constellations and the Milky Way, and uh, some kind of conversation with the Milky Way is possible, and, and also with the uh, zodiac and the zodiacal constellations, but uh, particularly the lunar constellations the polar constellations. They have a lot to say about the morphic field. (laughs) But I forgot to answer your question about John Dee Mm -hmm. and his conversations with angels. And maybe now I see that might be appropriate here. Mm. Um, Because um, mathematics was interpreted by him as being a, um, a healing art in which the stellar influences would be used for healing. Uh, he had in mind particularly human diseases. But in light of our current circle speculation, <coughs> we could also apply this on a larger scale, where we feel um, that our future and the biosphere's future is threatened somehow by the human infection. We might reach out here for a more radical solution to the problem following the ideas of John Dee. So this is sort of uh, how he did it, uh, traditional means. There are the nine celestial spheres, and there are the nine choirs of angels, and they're associated uh, each with uh, one sphere, although they can travel plus or minus one sphere. The more powerful ones can travel a little farther, but through their cooperative activity, they can pass messages up and down and the disease is called by imperfect resonance with these forces in the lowest, the lowest choir of angels which are just called angels they are particularly the messengers between the gods and the other spheres and people and individual people have individual angel guardians and, and so on so I mean this was the accepted world view of everybody in the time of John Dee, and he was a major expert of this view, but his, his intention was like ours, to get in contact with these intelligences as seen through the worldview of his time, the Elizabethan worldview, just as we're trying to do it in what's our worldview? Well, anyway.
2: Hollywood science
3: fiction. So, through the aid of his pal Ed, over a period of eight years, Explicit conversations in ordinary language took place Mm. with the aid, you know, of the showstone, and the language they spoke was not an earth language. Um, This was sort of the program that I had in mind in my experiment, but I don't have a pal, Ed, who can manipulate this stone around a board with letters of a mysterious alphabet and so on. So I was looking for, uh, following your idea, for guidance in, in a visual form, a vision, in fact, of my own, of the sort that we are familiar with having, of the kind that I have struggled with uh, machinery to reproduce. And I, as you see, I have not received a solution of our problems, but... I, I do think this is a, a program that an individual can pursue, even without psychedelics, but it requires a considerable commitment of of time. And I, I think that my experiments would have been enormously assisted by a computer-controlled stellarator. I do not think the Keck telescope would help. It's too indirect because... We have in mind, I don't know if this has come out in our recent trialogues, but we've had in mind um, photons, the electromagnetic field, as one aid in the materialization, as it were, the communication of the morphic resonance actually to our minds and individual soul. So, Uh, the indirectness of the Keck telescope is such that, uh, first of all, there's the segmented pseudo-parabolic mirror, and that focuses the photons eventually on um, a CCD. This is a photosensitive plate. And finally, the astronomer actually sits away downtown, in this way with the cafes around and so on, looking at a video screen. So I think that the indirectness would defeat the program. Better to have a stellarator, which is a telescope without glass, an empty tube basically. But if you wanted to study to communicate a particular star, then it would be nice to have this tube pointed at it, maybe a fairly large tube, so that it just indicates what circle of sky, you know, like where that is, so that you could focus on it for a long period of time. This is easy to do with the polar constellations however, any uh, favorite one beta, beta Cassiopeia for example, is a star that everyone knows and um, not only now but in earlier times when the pole was actually located in the far away um, galaxy is another another location in the polar co- the polar constellations have always been polar constellations so for a million years, we've been looking at Beta Cassiopeia and, and so on. So I'll recommend this to you and you and anyone else as a program. Even without a hot tub, you can use a sleeping bag, but uh, of course you don't want to fall asleep during just before an important communication is transmitted, so you have to keep awake.
1: <clears throat> I mean, we can start nearer home with the sun, of course. And I mean it's hard to look at the sun in midday but in sunset for example there was a wonderful one this evening over the sea um, at sunrise and sunset um, in many traditions people have communicated with the sun and our own civilization is based to a degree uh, to an extraordinary degree on what's often jocularly referred to as sun worship as millions of the urban rich and middle class even working classes um, spend their entire winter fantasizing about which beach they're going to go to for the summer in England since it's usually rainy uh, people like going to Spain uh, the Costa del Sol and that kind of thing and lying around on beaches in the sun I mean, it's referred to as sun worship but we should perhaps take that a bit more seriously there's this um, the way in which people like to be in the sun it's now known to be dangerous bad for the skin and so on it doesn't stop people Uh, that's relatively recent in the 19th century very few people lay in the sun so there's a curious movement of our whole civilization towards uh, this new relationship to the sun through lying in it in India it's a traditional part of the daily ritual of Indians to greet the sun as it rises in the morning the Surya Namaskar a yogic practice a prostration to the sun which I actually I've done it myself every day for maybe 15 years. Um, is, um, I don't always get up and do it at dawn pointing to the sun, but um, it's um, a greeting of the sun in the morning that forms a conscious relationship to it. And this conscious awareness of the sun is probably, well, and of the moon for that matter, <coughs> but the sun's more important in this respect, is something we can uh, start with. Well, I think uh,
3: maybe we should reconsider the moon. Since uh, it's hard to have visual contact with the sun unless you get special glasses, which is a possibility. We could have, um, instead of a stellarator, just these uh, dark, dark lenses. The moon, however, is quite interesting. It's a special... It has its own sphere, of course, the lunar sphere. And among the nine spheres, the lunar sphere is somehow the most important one. It's the membrane... For our kind of life everything inside the lunar sphere uh, decays and dies and everything outside the lunar sphere is eternal so um, the the moon was somehow always seen as uh, the boundary of mortal life furthermore it is visible at night and you can look at it and everyone loves to look at it and you do get some kind of powerful, well, I used to say that uh, consciousness evolved by starlight, and probably uh, love and the emotional con- uh, structure of the human and mammalian system has evolved by moonlight. So it's, it's very good for us to study the moon. A problem in learning to communicate with the moon is that it moves so rapidly, it changes its phases. So if you have the habit, for example, to observe in the evening, or you always do your observation in the morning, then there's only a few days a month when you can actually do it to to communicate with the moon. And, and that makes it difficult, because after the lapse of almost a month, when you start again and then you've sort of forgotten, nevertheless, the moon has uh, definite possibilities, and it might be the strongest experience. Our, our likeliest uh, possibility of actually having a conversation and renewing our contact with the living and intelligent world, the universe would be uh, through the moon
1: I don't myself expect the moon to have a great deal of uh, intelligence or life I mean it's the most in that heavenly body we know I think I mean Venus is a turbulent system with plenty of scope for chaotic perturbations and shifting systems of order Jupiter has this extraordinary vortical system on it, this flowing fluid flow system of an incredibly dynamical kind. Saturn has these delicately poised and no doubt oscillatory rings, and many of them have very sensitive, like membranes which could pick up fleeting changes and so on, which could be interfaces between the physical and the mental realm. The moon seems rather lacking in that respect.
3: Okay, maybe the moon is dumb. <laughs> I'm not willing to concede that, but I I see that some people would rather um, put their money on a different number. So let me still recommend some alternative to the sun, and perhaps um, one of the brighter planets. Uh, Jupiter is is probably the one that most people are familiar with. But this. Um, Jupiter and Saturn are (coughs) visible in the sky almost like stars. They stay in the same position for a long time. So it's easy to find them Mm -hmm. without a computer-controlled stellarator. And to watch them, I mean, they're simply the brightest things around. So what about that, contacting Jupiter or Saturn? What do you think, Terrence, some botanical trips should be devoted to this
2: Well, I observed someone once who claimed that uh, somewhere out between uh, Mars and Jupiter is an invisible topological twist yet uh, to be discovered by science. A new twist. Yes, a new twist, and that Jupiter actually is the Earth. In some uh, peculiar twisted reflection, a twisted reflection in another order of matter.
3: Well, that would be okay. Yeah, that's hard to observe the Earth at night, and maybe Jupiter is that this twist is there in order to facilitate. Well,
2: there's plenty of exotic chemistry on Jupiter, and even um, I think the current thinking is that uh, Europa is actually the most likely place in the solar system, other than the Earth, to have life because Europa has very dense, deep oceans of liquid water. No, Europa water. It
3: has to be as dumb as our moon. Why would it be smarter than our moon? No, it has, it has
2: oceans of liquid water, which in fact may be that the entire thing is a drop of liquid water. In other words, there may be no solid well, is
3: supporting life, a sign of planetary intelligence? Is that the idea? There is a school of thinking that holds to that. Well then this earth is dumb because it spawned us.
1: But biological life is but one form. I mean if we're talking about life as the kind the sun may have or the solar system or the galaxy we don't have to go straight for biological life. That would be equivalent to the sort of similar level uh, peer communication type
2: Yes, I mean, what you're talking about when you're talking about Jupiter or something like that is superconducting life at high pressures, No, we're talking fires of angels
3: here. We want to hear the song. But I'm talking about the medium is
2: Jovian, where something like uh, Europa, it's more a terrestrial thing. These other kinds of life, I dare say, are... uh, Live mostly in our fevered imaginations at this point. I mean, the evidence for them is extraordinarily underwhelming,
3: I think.
1: But how, how many people have looked? I mean, this is a good point. Well, a
3: person who's, <laughs> who's going to disbelieve porn circles is certainly not going to have a, a yeah. clever conversation with Madimi.
2: No, Medini is another thing. Oh, you'd be impressed by Medini. I liked Medini. I liked her act. <laughs> uh, but from there to the Thinking Sun is a, a long step, although not an impossible one. But but I think the thing about the whole discussion about Seti and that is that the difficulty is not to. Uh, the difficulty is to recognize extraterrestrial intelligence or non-human intelligence I think it's there on the Sun on Jupiter, but the very nature of its non-humanness makes it uh, either elusive or uninteresting or Horrifying and that it's of probably a very narrow spectrum that will be that we would have the experience of an I-Thou relationship with. I mean, we can decide here and now that, in fact, the sun is alive and highly literate and so forth. It doesn't greatly change our experience uh, in the way that um, an extraterrestrial with which we could at least exchange information with would be. I mean, the creatures in the DMT place are pretty non-human. They're not made of matter. They appear to be some kind of plastic energy, either they're syntactical or, uh, uh, I don't know, they're not made of matter. They are cognizable as individuals. In other words, we can say there are many of them and that they move through a kind of space. I don't know. I think the, the recognition of intelligence, if it's not like yours, is going to be very difficult. I mean, we can't even have Croats and
3: Serbs getting along together, so... Uh, no, but you've already encountered intelligence. Let's say we call it the transcendent other for the moment. Suppose it turned out that the transcendent other was not in hyperdimensional space, in other words, beyond space and time, living on the other side of the eschaton, but actually lived in a crater on, on the moon, and that this um, became a, a personal conviction of yours after performing the experiment suggested by Rupert, that uh, during your travels you devote a certain amount of time to peering through the stellarator at different heavenly bodies and suddenly you find out that you always meet these beings and get this kind of experience and information when looking there and other, completely other, when looking there Mm -hmm. and that what you're looking at, the vision actually, and after a bunch of experiments, you find out, yes indeed, this is so. I now think that the transcendent other lives on the moon Mm -hmm. and then this other green and purple one is sort of associated with Europa and then that would not only be an interesting discovery, but would completely change your whole idea uh, about your uh, shamanic experience throughout your No, your I life. think
2: that would be interesting. So far, in terms of locating these things, the only locators we've been able to find are drugs. In other words, we say, this creature lives on the other side of 15 milligrams of psilocybin. <laughs> it does not live on the other side of 75 milliliters of ayahuasca. These are not satisfying locators because we're not used to thinking of a molecule as standing for a spatial temporal
3: locus. polymorphic well, <laughs> resonance gives us a mechanism to associate a given plant species with a, with, with a particular planet.
2: Well, Morphic resonance too, or or the doctrine of signatures. I mean, this yes, is what ancient
1: herbals did. This
2: the the magic right, that Dee oh, right. built on was the magic of Ficino, and Campanella, and yes, these people. Yes, oh, that that not only
3: plants but minerals, everything that's right, and w- perfumes and musical
2: notes and metals, and, uh, All and you would build up these attractor tableaux on the day of Venus, at the hour of Venus, you would burn the incense of Venus, play the song of Venus, recite the poem of Venus, wrapped in the garment of Venus, in the color of Venus, and then um, something associated with Venus would in fact come to be.
1: uh. I think this is a fascinating research project, and it could be done (laughs) uh, for next to nothing. Mm -hmm. And it could be done by uh, networks of people working you know, sharing their results and so on and I think that the where it would really mesh with our whole civilization is when this information through channeling from different stars and communicating in this way can help to bring about a new synthesis of astrology and astronomy I mean astrology mm-hmm. has a much bigger popular following than astronomy does mm-hmm. um, and, but it's this tragic way it's got disconnected from the actual heavens but this, the popular belief there's a meaning in the heavens and a connection between the heavens and the earth is very, very widespread so <coughs> I think this ingredient of communication of extraterrestrial intelligence and connections with Jupiter, Venus and so on um, and the bringing together of astrology and astronomy a, a very elementary starting point would be something we thought of a couple of weeks ago at Hollyhock Farm in British Columbia the Esalen of the North They have a wonderful naturalist there, George Sirk, Mm. who gives talks at night on all the stars, pointing out the constellations, the heavens, and so on. A weekend workshop of astronomy for astrologers would be an elementary beginning. Um, But um, I think that these elements could be brought together. This is a project for the future. I think it would have some relevance to the problems we were talking about this afternoon. If we're looking for guidance, in what happens in earth, on earth and we certainly need it then recognizing how we're embedded within the heavens, within the solar system the galaxy, uh, the context in which we live and the possibility of intelligences at our level, below our level and far above our level throughout the heavens um, uh, that could play a role in guiding us uh, could be an important clue but this research project it is as yet uh, E- not even begun. I mean, the only pioneer so far has been Ralph in his hot tub. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you think we should know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's hearts? something. I have. Yes. Um,
2: I, I, I'm not sure that I understood what Ralph said. It, neither of you seem to have picked up on it. Did you say you did communicate with something on uh, the well story s- that you concentrated
3: uh, on in your well, Uh Yes. And well, what
2: did they I'm like? not
3: going to report a conversation. I, I invested uh, a year, well more actually, but for one year practically every night I did stare at these objects for a long time and simply make note of my you know, visual impressions and there's nothing uh, definite enough to tell you I didn't take a psychedelic during that period or something right. like that. But I did um, have an intuitive feeling that supported Rupert's program, ah. and just recommend tr- trying it yourself. I won't try to put it in words. So
2: it's just sort of a feeling that you can't express, like many.
3: Well, ones. I think that if you, if you followed a lot of ancient instructions, uh, such as Jill is suggesting, mm-hmm. with the uh, invocation by name and and sound, wearing the clothes, and John Dee did all of these things. And uh, uh, the invocations are recorded, and there are many people now practicing this uh, system of angel magic in England and in the United States, where the invocations are written down in John D's notebooks. Uh, there's the John D Society that publishes this material for anybody who wants to try it.
1: But do they do it while looking at particular stars? Yes. Do mm, oh, do they? Yes.
3: The, um, uh, a, a typical uh, group doing an a invocation does have a so-called astrologer who's uh who keeps track or has the clock and keeps track of the exact positions with the ephemerides and um checks the position and they're they're definitely c- communicating with uh stars but say
1: so what do they have to say
3: well they <clears throat> you have to uh you have to experience it i want to tell you they.
1: Have you been to one of these
3: D yes. chapters? Yes. Oh. Yes. The, well, the experiences are extremely powerful. People are possessed by the intelligences. Act out. We're not talking about some feeble uh, writing in a mysterious alphabet here. There are very powerful communications, including the waving of swords and uh, um, self-protective devices, and including... Uh, trying to exit the room which is forbidden, and it's very powerful.
1: So this is already going on then?
3: Extensively. (laughs) Hmm. You mentioned the doctrine of signatures earlier, I didn't understand the reference to that.
2: Me? It was an idea in late medieval medicine that things that were similar Could be used, well, but physical similarities indicated possible applications to disease. So, in other words, if you have a plant with leaves shaped like kidneys, this would obviously cure kidney infection. So, it's where you look in the physical world for, uh, it's a way of, it's an analogical form of thinking. You look at the physical world and you try to bring things together that seem associated, and then you use this medicinally. Do you see? So that like...
1: Well,
3: that ended, but then how does that relate to John D.
2: Well, 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 this form of angel magic that comes out of Ficino and then is perfected in Campanella uh, it takes the idea that you... Uh, the it, it was basically Deccan magic. The zodiacal signs can be divided into thirds. This is now obsolete, but these Deccans used to be very important. They ruled a third of each zodiacal sign, and each Deccan had associations to it and an image uh, so that a Deccan might be associated with the color black and large cats, and uh, certain fragrances, certain flowers. So then if you were going to invoke this decan, you would know the hour of its rising, and you would bring all these materials together, and then you would play music. Certain notes were sanctioned for this, so that people like Michael Meyer, there's actually alchemical music extant to be performed at these at these invocations, and uh, and through building up these sympathies and harmonies, you would attempt to capture the power of this uh, of this stellar entity.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Usually, you would pull it down into a talisman something made of a certain metal with certain letters and figures inscribed on it that could be worn around the neck. Or sometimes you would pull the power down into a filter, meaning P filter with a P, a liquid that you could take as a medicine or apply on bedclothes or it depended on what it was for. This was very... uh, uh, this was very strong that you see all of the magical literature of the Middle Ages was basically derived from a single work called Picatrix that did not was not lost in the West all the other magical literature of late Roman Hellenism Existed for centuries only in monasteries in Syria. It was lost to the West and then uh at the time of the of the Renaissance, all these manuscripts were brought to Italy and translated, and it created this huge flowering of magical thinking. And this was the kind of magic they were talking about. It became it took the figure of the magician, who was essentially previously imaged as an a haggish rural old woman who had spells and strange material, and turned the magician into the renaissance magus, you know, the companion of princes, the co-ruler of the state in a scheme of magical sympathy and resonances. Popes were, you know, in, in the cover of the Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic tradition. There's a picture of the mosaic at Siena Cathedral that shows Hermes Trismegistus co equal with Moses. So, this is where the Renaissance thinking on this was.
3: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: So, uh, what do you think about Rupert's idea of directed mind travel, or uh, better described as uh, psychonauts in space? (laughs) I like the idea myself. Uh, During the period when I was solar gazing every day, I often spent that time uh, thinking about the sun as if it were a conscious entity, and I've often thought uh, about the consciousness of stars. Uh, Now, I realize that uh, this is a little far out for some of our fellow saloners. Uh, particularly for the newcomers to the salon. So I don't often uh, talk about some of these ideas, uh, but that doesn't mean that they aren't uh, interesting to me. So far, uh, I haven't come to any conclusions one way or the other, but I'm definitely going to reread Star Maker again. I think it was about uh, 25 minutes or so into his rap when uh, Rupert was describing organic solar systems uh, in organic galaxies in organic superclusters and so on that I was uh, reminded of Olaf Stapleton's magnificent novel, Star Maker. And then uh, a few minutes later, we heard Terence McKenna also comment about that book coming to mind. And if you haven't read it, I think it uh, would be worth your time and trouble to uh, track down a copy. But on the whole, uh, without trying to, uh, Rupert does a great job of summing it up, uh, at least in the abstract. Interestingly, uh, just yesterday I read a report about some new work that has uh, been done, which suggests that the entire universe is fractal in nature. Until recently, uh, this was thought to be true up to up to and through, I guess, structures as large as the uh, superclusters. But uh, the latest research seems to indicate that the fractal nature of things holds true uh, at least out to the uh, 200 million plus light year range. Now, why would uh, I or anyone else care about this? Uh, <laughs> well, I'm not sure to tell the truth, but I do find it fascinating whenever uh, some sacred corner of science is upended. Uh, here's a little bit about uh, what this uh, website article said about the fractal universe, and uh, I'll post a link to it uh, in our program notes. But this site said, many cosmologists find fault with their analysis, uh, talking about the analysis of the Uh, fractal nature at the large scale, largely because a fractal matter distribution out to such huge scales undermines the standard model of cosmology. According to the accepted story of cosmic evolution, there simply hasn't been enough time since the Big Bang, nearly 14 billion years ago, for gravity to build up such large structures. What's more... The assumption that the distribution is homogeneous has allowed cosmologists to model the universe fairly simply, using Einstein's theory of general relativity, which relates to the shape of space to the distribution of matter. Modeling a fractal universe with general relativity is uh, possible in theory, but in reality it would be devilishly complicated. That would leave cosmologists without a working model like acrobats without a net. (laughs) Now, what does uh, all of this have to do with us here in the psychedelic salon? Uh, Well, I don't know, maybe nothing. uh, But it's interesting to think about these things every once in a while, uh, don't you think? However, uh, these past few days, I've had some other things to think about, and uh, thankfully I I received an email from Janice, who is a fellow salonner currently living in Denmark. And uh, he let me know that Google was uh, reporting that our uh, notes from the Psychedelic Salon website wasn't safe. Well, uh, it took a little digging, but I finally found some code that uh, somehow had been slipped into our site uh, that Google and I both found offensive. Uh, it appeared to be a, a tracker of some kind. So uh, I took down all of the external links and began rebuilding the site, uh, a project that is isn't quite finished yet, but uh, at least the problem has been solved, and uh, Google is no longer uh, reporting us to be a hazard. And uh, I do apologize to anyone who got freaked out by that. Uh, actually, uh, I, I freaked out a little myself at first uh, when I saw Google uh, saying bad things about us. But uh, now that I know what happened and uh, possibly how it happened, I'll, I'll be checking several times every day to see that it doesn't happen again. Uh, Hopefully uh, we can move on to our next crisis now. Uh, But thank you, Janice, for letting me know about this little problem. I'd like to go on and uh, pass along some of the thoughts and comments that are coming in by email and uh, through our forum over at thegrowreport.com. But uh, this is already a little longer program than I normally like to do. Uh, And the other reason I'm not going to uh, get into some of these things is that uh, my little diversion with the hacker on our site has kept me away from uh, the forum for a week and. Just now, when I took a quick look to see if there's a few comments I could pass along, I realized that it's going to take several hours just to uh, catch up on all the great posts that our fellow saloners have made on the Psychedelic Salon Forum. And on top of that, uh, every time I go to the grillreport.com forums, I also wind up spending a lot of time on the uh, forums for the Sea Realm, the Dopecast, BB's Bungalow, Lefty's Lounge, Max Freakout, Psychonautica Podcast, uh All in all, uh, Zandor and Mrs. Z have uh, provided a terrific resource for our community on their Grow Report site. And uh, that's only the tip of the iceberg because uh, this is also the place where the medical marijuana growing community goes for cultivation help. So uh, I'm going to sign off for now, uh, but maybe I'll bump into you over on one of the forums in a few minutes. However, before I go, I want to mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for your use under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharelike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And that's also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space.